This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from SubChina. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and despite the high cost of living, it remains popular. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and, after having lived in China for so long, has become more of a grammar socialist. Language is words, so learn enough words and you'll be fluent, right? As a sophisticated learner, you know it's not that simple. This episode, we discuss the subtleties of vocabulary learning, how it is and isn't like Legos, and what high frequency means, and how to apply all of this to your studies. Guest interview is with Misha Wilmers from England. For all of you who wanted to learn Chinese during the lockdown, Misha did exactly that and shares how he achieved proficiency despite little interaction with others. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hi guys, I'm John Pazden and I am in Shanghai, China. How's it going everybody? All right, John, before we kick into things today, we do have a couple of reviews to read. So I'll go ahead and lead us off. Our first one comes from Jess Blythe from in the United States. She says, uh, excellent language learning resource, five stars. Wow, what a great resource. Incredible information from the host to help understand learning Mandarin. The podcast includes informative and intriguing interviews from people of all backgrounds with different stories. I've been binging the episodes on breaks and work, currently up to episode 34. Love every episode so far. Thank you for the great resource. Hey, well, thanks, Jess, and I'm glad that you're getting so much out of it. Thanks, Jess. And I have one here from Kendra 5 in the U.S., uh, Apple Podcasts. Kendra says, The best! So awesome and useful. Really encouraging. I was wondering if you guys ever were confronted with a Chinese person who was really intimidating to you, a boss, someone who was really talented. And all of a sudden, it's like you forget every word you ever learned and every tone you ever learned. I just had this happen to me. My tones are probably not awesome, but I could tell that literally all of my tones, even for words I almost always say right, I think, we're following English patterns all of a sudden. So bad. Um, but Kendra, yeah, that's, that's definitely happened to me back in the day. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing much you can do about that except keep going, right? You know, John, actually, it doesn't seem to happen to me around Chinese people, but it happens around happens to me around people uh, like like people named John Pasden, you know, <laughs> who's got great Chinese. And I'm like, oh, I feel like a little, you know... Uh, mushroom next to you so to speak anyway uh so yeah i don't know i think that's probably sometimes where my chinese kind of goes oh. come on man don't be intimidated we're all in this together keep going yeah, we're all in this but, but you know maybe one day i can be like the illustrious john gotta work hard man okay so today we have a topic related to vocabulary and of course vocabulary is super important for learning a language um i think that might be one of the reasons that we haven't really focused on it a whole lot until now but I think because it's so important, some people um, maybe assign it a role that it doesn't really have. So we've talked before about like, you know, flashcards and other types of review and how some people will just download a, a massive list of vocabulary and they'll just review that vocabulary. And, and that's basically how they're, you know, quote unquote, learning the language. And so um, yeah. I think, oh, good. Yeah, you know, some of these guys can, yeah, you know, that can be easy to turn into what I call a flashcard junkie, you know? You're like, hey, I'm just going to 
learn every character I can, every word that I possibly can. But, you know, it's like, uh, if you think about it this way, you're like, oh, I'm going to memorize the dictionary there and I'll be fluent in the language. But, you know, it, we all know that it's a lot more than just that. Yeah, I mean, I think if they think about it, they realize that that's not going to turn them into a, a fluent speaker by itself. But um, I think some people still have kind of this tendency. And I think it might be related to just the way they think, that maybe a sort of a mistaken notion about uh, vocabulary and sort of an oversized role that it plays. And um, I was thinking about if they have kind of the wrong conception of vocabulary, maybe um, it would be useful to sort of reframe that um, by using a metaphor. Um, I like metaphors. So um, you often hear things like, you know, vocabulary is uh, words and words are the building blocks of language. And uh, yeah, I think that's fair. But um, if you take that too far and you just think about how, oh, I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to build a pyramid, I just need a bunch of bricks. So I'm just accumulating a bunch of bricks, going to stack them up and bam, I'm fluent. All right, then uh, it doesn't quite work like, like that because, uh, you know, bricks are a bunch of uniform pieces that you can just stack up however you want to make anything. Whereas vocabulary is just a little bit trickier. So um, I think it would be useful to come up with a, a metaphor which is a little bit more nuanced, maybe not perfect, but a little bit more nuanced. And uh, how about I ask you, Jared, can you think of something that maybe works a little better than just regular old blocks? Yeah, you know, I might venture out to say something more like Legos. Uh, you know, they've got little dots they hook together in specific ways, and you have odd-shaped pieces and uh, different colors, and so to speak. I, that's, a, that's how I might think about it. Yeah, so that's definitely better, right? You have different pieces for different situations. You can put them together in different ways to make different words. Um, yeah, definitely an improvement. Um, but even Legos, you have a whole bunch of the same piece. Um, you, you can totally interchange a lot of them. You know, you have a whole bunch of two by fours and one by threes, and uh, especially certain sets, just lots of repetition. And I think this doesn't really capture how uh, so many words are just these special little, you know, these precious gems that uh, really demand uh, attention. And uh, you can't just randomly insert them into a sentence like every sentence you create is a Mad Lib or something, right? Yeah, that's right. I guess, you know, I think maybe some of my younger kids making a creation out of Legos and I might be like, uh, what is that? They might know, right? But uh, maybe right <laughs> on a first glance, you're not entirely sure what that is, right? <laughs> well, I don't want to find fault with uh, kids' creative use of Legos and or kids' creative use of language. That's all cool and that's, uh, that's part of learning. But when it comes to adults, um, I think maybe a better metaphor might be something more along the lines of puzzle pieces. So when you think about a jigsaw puzzle, mm. you know, you get all these pieces and you have to take each piece one by one and really look at it and try to figure out what other pieces can it go together with? Like, what does it look like? And it can't just go with any other piece, right? You can't take two jig jigsaw puzzle pieces and put them together however you want. So it takes some time of studying these pieces to really get familiar enough with them to be able to put them together in any, you know, even remotely correct way. I love that analogy, John, because it's like, yeah, if you have all the puzzle pieces, you know, but you don't know what the picture is supposed to look like or what it can look like, you know, you may not be sure how to put those together. And I can think about a lot of learners who've acquired a lot of vocabulary like that. They got that big bag of puzzle pieces, but maybe they're just not confident or not sure or maybe not proficient enough to actually put that together so it, it visualizes something they're trying to communicate. 
Yeah. So when you think about a puzzle, like what's the whole point of a puzzle? It's the challenge of building it. But then in the end, you're supposed to see a picture. And that picture is like the meaning that you're after, right? And with language, you're trying to convey some kind of meaning. That's right. A picture is worth 10,000 words. <laughs> might take 10,000 pieces as well to put that together. <laughs> It just might. So, so like, you know, that, that is the goal, that, that meaning, right? And so if you're working on a puzzle and your friend's like, oh, how's that puzzle coming along? You don't want to just be like, well, I got a whole bunch of pieces <laughs> because uh, that's, that's not where the meaning is derived. Uh, you need to actually put them together. And uh, maybe you don't have all the pieces together, but, you know, they're, they're together in a more meaningful way. So um, hopefully this metaphor for language, although maybe not perfect, um, is a little bit useful to you, just in case you're one of those people that can't stop putting puzzle pieces in a big old bag. Okay, now since we're on the topic of vocabulary, I also wanted to revisit um, an idea by Paul Nation, the world's foremost expert on vocabulary acquisition. And uh, we had a podcast way back in uh, episode 13 about the four strands of language learning, of which vocabulary is an important part. Uh, do you remember those four strands, Jared? Oh, absolutely. I think that they're very influential to me. So, all right. So the first one is meaning-focused input. That means you're getting some sort of input, reading, verbal input that is meaningful to you. That has some sort of relevance to you. The second point is formed focused instruction. So yeah, so anyone listening, this is like you're studying some sort of curriculum. Maybe you have a teacher, you have some sort of class. This is when you're like deliberately studying and trying to learn the language. Uh, third strand is meaning focused output. So you're having some sort of way to speak, or you are having some sort of you know writing where you're generating output in the in your target language. And then the fourth thing is fluency development. So this is just, you're not necessarily trying to learn anything new. It's just you're trying to learn and use what you already know. Yeah, and an interesting thing is that uh, one of the points that Paul Nation makes is that when you're doing either meaning-focused input, you know, trying to understand something you're listening to or something you're reading, or meaning-focused output, just trying to write or trying to say something, um, if, if you've been given a topic and you don't have the vocabulary you need, then that activity kind of by default will become a vocabulary acquisition activity. And mm -hmm. that's not the same thing. It's not meaning-focused when you're just focusing on the words rather than the bigger picture. And it's also not fluency development because you need to have some mastery of those, uh, you know, of those words in order to actually use them to work on your fluency. Yeah, and I think something I would like to point out is that that doesn't mean you won't be learning new words, but I think, you know, if you're spending all your time trying to just learn the words you need to communicate, then, then it's not going to be an optimal exercise for you. Yeah, and so it's undeniable that uh, this vocabulary is all really important, but um, if you want to actually get fluent, then you also need to make sure that you're focused on the fluency development. So in order to get us there, um, instead of endlessly building vocabulary, we need to be a bit more focused. And the vocabulary that we work on, especially in the beginning, needs to be high-frequency vocabulary. So this word high-frequency, um, Jared, you know this term, right? Yeah, high-frequency, pretty much we're talking about like the most common characters, words that you're going to encounter out in the wild, or at least, you know, how you're using Chinese. Right. So it could be spoken, could be written. Um, it's just the most common vocabulary. And according to Paul Nation, for most languages, that's going to be two to 3,000 words. So um, you really need to focus on the high-frequency vocabulary first. Some people make the mistake of just covering everything. 
like just jumping right into something that's way above their head and then trying to memorize everything. But you'll actually make much faster progress and it'll be more satisfying for you if you focus on the high frequency vocabulary first so that everything starts to make more sense. So um, one thing that people don't always quite get is like, where does this high frequency come from? Like there's not some kind of, uh, you know, world tribunal that determines, you know, what words are high frequency and what are not. <laughs> and not only that, but language is constantly changing. It varies from region to region. So where is this whole high frequency thing coming from? Well, John, I can tell you where it doesn't come from. What, intuition? <laughs> I guess intuition, but, you know, one of the most common things that people do is that they're going to look at these, like, frequency lists for things that, like newspapers in Chinese. Uh, and that's all well and fine, right? But those aren't, like, maybe the characters are going to be most relevant to someone who's learning Chinese as a second language. Maybe unless you're really getting into the news business, right? <laughs> There's going to be a lot of characters in there that aren't really spoken or, you know, more literary type or just things that are more associated with the news. All right, well, let's step back a bit because when you say a frequency list, then high frequency by definition means the, the words on that list that are highest ranked, right? But the That's problem right. is um, the list, where does it come from? So a frequency list is going to come from a corpus, which is a group of texts. Uh, so this is the field of corpus analysis. You put together this corpus, you gather a bunch of texts, and then you use computers to analyze it. And from there, you can derive a frequency list. And this, this uh, form of computational linguistics has made big strides in the past you know, 20, 50 years, uh, starting with English and now more and more in Chinese. And it's super useful. But as you were mentioning, you know, if you're focused on improving your spoken Chinese, then getting a frequency list from a newspaper corpus is not going to be super relevant because you're not going to be, you know, speaking like a newscaster or, you know, uh, using all these formal phrases that news articles tend to use. So, John, what corpus is going to be best for someone who's learning Chinese as a second language? All right, well, this isn't something that most people can just turn to, like, oh, let me just open up my corpus. Uh, <laughs> typically, we rely on academics th to do their research and to you know, use some corpus. Like here at Mandarin Companion, uh, we use the corpus created by Allset Learning, which is focused on educational materials, and it's not newspaper corpus, although we do have other types of uh, corpora. Uh, but you have to focus on the corpus that's relevant to what you're learning. And there are spoken language corpora, which are created by getting a bunch of people talking about different stuff and then recording those and then transcribing that into text and then using that text to create a corpus and analyze it. It is possible. The only problem is that um, most of those, uh, especially in Chinese, haven't been done recently. Like there are ones that are used a lot and cited in academic papers that are from like 2003, 2009. And uh, language changes quite rapidly. So you'll find that in those, you know, if you use an old corpus, you're not going to see a bunch of words that you actually hear people saying on the street today. So that's definitely a problem. And then you have the issue of like, well, where are the people from? Are they in Taiwan? Are they in Beijing? Are they in Shanghai? So, so it, it is a complicated matter, but um, you do want to use corpus analysis to figure out high-frequency words, and then you want to focus on those high-frequency words. All right, so let's bring this together. Like, what does all this mean for someone who's, I guess, frankly, trying to acquire vocabulary and trying to learn a lot of new characters and words? Okay, so I said that we want to focus on high-frequency vocabulary. That's the common language. 
And if that's two to 3,000 words, that's not too bad. And so assuming you can do that, then what comes next, right? I think that's a good question uh, related to what you're asking. And um, the reason this is important is because everybody is learning language for different reasons. Um, you know, maybe you're a physicist and you want to talk to other people in the lab. Maybe you're a programmer and you want to talk about a Git repo or whatever it is. So as you start to get into the less uh, frequent vocabulary, just make sure that if it's specialized vocabulary, then it's something that's relevant to you. Because if it's not specialized vocabulary that's relevant, then you're just learning low-frequency vocabulary. Uh, this is something that Paul Nation points out. He says, one person's technical vocabulary is another person's low-frequency word. And you definitely want to avoid low-frequency words like the plague um, because those are going to be hard to learn. You're never going to use them. And they'll just, they'll just like clog up all your review sessions. So focus on high frequency and then the specialized technical vocabulary that is relevant to you. You know, I can relate to this very well, John. As you know, back in Shanghai, you have a bakery there, a cinnamon roll bakery. And as a result, I've learned a lot of words that are related to baking and specifically making cinnamon rolls. And not just that, also customer service language. That things that I don't think, a, you know, a... A second language learner of Chinese would normally encounter or just like, kind of know how to say. Um, but, you know, for me, it was super high frequency. I've been using these at, at sometimes, you know, hundreds, hundreds of times a day. And, and just, you know, and so it's specialized. But for me, it was highly relevant and highly useful. So, you know, that's something I would recommend is that, yeah, and I, I think when you get into the specialization, I really, I would say there's two aspects. One, yes, if it's relevant to you and it's something you're going to be using, that's definitely a great, uh, great thing to learn. But also, too, if it's something of great interest to you, something you're just interested in, and maybe you are interested in some aspect of Chinese or Chinese culture or language, something like that, where you are learning some specialized things that may not be as useful to the general populace, but for you, it's something that you just want to invest your time in. Yeah, for sure. Interest means relevant. It doesn't have to be like super practical, like work-related. Uh, if you're interested or you know you can use it right away, then that's definitely something you want to focus on. And your example is a good one because like baking vocabulary, that is technical for me. I won't use it. Um, Low-frequency vocabulary. So, uh, bam, don't need that stuff. For me, like my first really specialized technical vocabulary was all the linguistic stuff that I had to do in grad school. None of my Chinese friends wanted to talk to me about that stuff, especially not my wife. Uh, but my classmates, you know, we all use that for our classes. So it looks like I've got an area of Chinese that's better than John Paston's. But are your tones good, Jared? Do you know all the tones properly for those? No comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So uh, I think we basically covered all the main points we wanted to make. Um, just to wrap up real quick, number one, uh, learning a language is not just accumulating vocabulary. So don't be that guy with a big old bag of puzzle pieces that doesn't use them for anything. And then number two, uh, frequency is important. So you definitely want to focus on high frequency first. And then if you're starting to get specialized, make sure that it's relevant to you. And you can learn Chinese. You can learn Chinese. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is... Mandarin Companion. And today we're talking about our Mandarin Companion Level 2 Graded Readers. 
Great Expectations. It's our 450-character graded reader, and it's Charles Dickens' classic that is adapted and simplified into Chinese for you. In fact, it's really the longest graded reader out there. Yeah, so we're talking 30,000 characters of Chineseified Dickens' goodness. That's a lot of characters! That's right. So you can go out there and get it today. It's an excellent story. I love this one. We've had people say when they finished the book, they cried. I mean, it's it's great story. You can go out there and get it today. You can find it uh, on Amazon, Kobo, iBooks, or wherever you get your books. It's Great Expectations, a level two commander companion greater reader based on using only 450 basic characters. Yep, available in simplified, traditional, uh, ebook, and print book. So go and get them. All right, now it's time for Rants and Raves. John, what do you got for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have an on-topic, slightly nerdy rave. Uh, so we were talking <laughs> about corpus analysis before and, and how it's kind of a pain to create a, a corpus of spoken language. So some people did something which was super smart, uh, creative. They used subtitle files, you know, these SRT files which have subtitles for a movie. They used that to create this big old corpus of like movie script language. So it's in all different languages, including Chinese. The name is subtlex-ch. It's kind of kind of mm. hard to say. But um, cool. if you're at all interested in a corpus analysis, uh, this type of frequency information, uh, we've got a link in the show notes. Check it out. That's great. I can brush up on my movie Chinese, right? You can. So Jared, do you have a rant or rave? I have got a rave. Oh, yes. So I read a lot of things and, you know, hey, we're talking about language. We're involved in language education. I came across this interesting article and it was, and the article is titled, Scientists Find the Missing Link Behind First Human Languages. So it's kind of caught my eye. Well, it was interesting. They did a study and they had, I think, people who spoke uh, like over 30 languages and they were trying to find out what were commonalities uh, that all these people seem to understand regardless of what language they spoke. And they found there were actually quite a lot. Uh, for example, I mean, a common one you might think is someone sleeping, like the sound of snoring, uh, a lion roaring, uh, things like this, which uh, they found like, hey, you know, these were probably like the, the earliest uh, ways that people communicated uh, verbally. And, and so, I, I don't know, I was just, I kind of thought it was interesting because there was some sort of link. You know, if you've ever, like, I remember when I first went to China, <laughs> I was trying to order stuff at the restaurant and we we're trying to, like, making, like, making, like, chickens sounds like, bark, 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 and they're like, oh, you know, jiro, right? And, and whatever it was. And so, it, and we were trying to understand and communicate like it. But it seems like, hey, you know, that was really, uh, you know, just there's a lot of sounds that are intuitive to people regardless of what language you speak. Yeah, we're all human, right? So, uh, lots of... Lots of cool stuff there to mine. I know that you're a fan of uh, onomatopoeia, as many of us are, and examining how they're, you know, different different languages. That's fun stuff, too. Oh, yes, that, that is. I mean, because, you know, it's kind of funny how in different languages, you can find five people that speak five different languages, and you say, hey, what does the dog say? What does the sheep say? But, John, I've got a question for you. What does the fox say? He's just shaking his head <laughs> like he should. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to the song. I don't know what you want me to say to that. Yeah, okay, well, so sorry. All right. Oh, Jared. Foxes. Ooh. 
My name's Nisha and I work as an employability officer at a university in the UK. Uh, so my job is basically working with international students to help provide them a service that will help them to find jobs at home and abroad. Misha Wilmers joined me for this interview for Manchester, England. It's a big world, and there are people all over the globe learning Chinese. I've been learning Chinese for four years now. A lot of my spare time in terms of leisure time is dedicated to learning Chinese, and I also run a blog where I discuss best methods based on my experience. Like all of us, Misha has had successes and failures when it comes to learning Chinese. What I like about his story is that he figured out how to make the most progress in his Chinese at a time when his interaction with others was at an all-time low. How he did it may be surprising to some, but it makes sense to me. Stay with us. All right, Misha, why did you start learning Chinese? I had moved to a new city. I had landed a new job. I'm from Manchester in the north of England, and I landed a job in Leeds, which is about an hour away. And I didn't know anyone in the new city, so what I wanted to do was find activities that would help me to meet other people. Previously, sort of being into languages in the past, I grew up bilingual in English and Spanish. I'm half Spanish, and at school I'd learned French, but I was interested in learning a new language. Because I hadn't done so in a while since finishing school, and because I felt like, with French being so close to Spanish, that something like learning Chinese would provide a different kind of challenge. Obviously, you could have gone and said, "Hey, I'm going to learn Arabic, Japanese, or Korean, or something." But why Chinese? An additional reason was because the University of Leeds. I saw that they were offering these cheap beginner courses in Mandarin Chinese. Now I hear a lot of mixed feedback from people who are studying Chinese in school or through the Confucius Institute. What was your experience like? Mainly fantastic. So the first course was essentially the reason why I'm still studying today. I felt very inspired by it. So I would say the teaching style of my teacher at that time was not that structured. So he would just throw words and phrases at us left, right, and center. Just the most common phrases that everybody learns when they start learning Chinese. He he would use different techniques through song and things like that. And I just found a lot of this stuff beginning to stick. Particularly the songs I would find as I was driving to work in the morning the next day. A lot of the time, songs lyrics would pop into my head. And that would really help me memorize basic words and phrases. So my experience of the classes at Confucius, the beginner class I took, was really good. Basically, when I finished that, it was eight classes, each of them one and a half hours in the evening. I decided that I wanted it was something that I wanted to do more long term. Was there something else that you were able to do with your Chinese, or was there some, another motivating factors which kind of said, "Hell, hey, I, I want to keep learning this"? When I first started learning. Because of the nature of my job, I had a lot of appointment with students, and a lot of those students were actually from China. Because the University of Leeds has a very, very large number of postgraduate Chinese students at the university. One of the encounters that I would often have with students when I had appointments with them would be that I would just drop into the conversation that I could speak a little bit of Chinese. Of course, at that point, I could barely speak any, but I'm sure anyone who Has learned Chinese will know that, like <laughs> just <laughs> just even just the most basic words and phrases. If you surprise Chinese people with them, often they're very impressed. And 
I had a lot of those experiences early on. And that also was a really motivating factor. There was also the fact that the Confucius Institute offered a trip to China, which I was really keen to go on. And they offered this trip to anybody who had taken any of their courses. And this was a trip that they would basically take us around to see the Great Wall to Beijing and Xi'an and basically have a cultural experience of China. And I was really keen on that. Can you think of any experiences, any specific stories that you have of where speaking Chinese helped you in your job when you were working with Chinese students? So one year into learning Chinese, I basically applied for an internal job within the university. This internal job was similar to the role that I had working with students, but it was more specifically tailored towards working with international students. And the fact that I knew Chinese and that part of this job would be connecting with Chinese employers was something that I think held me in good stead. This was kind of a first experience where I thought, actually, Chinese, it might not just help me in terms of being able to connect culturally with other people, but also in terms of my career as well. Once in a while, I get messages from emails from listeners and readers who will say, hey, you know, what kind of jobs can I get from learning Chinese? You know, and this is a great example, uh, Misha, is like, hey, an opportunity came along and because you are learning Chinese or had some level of proficiency, it helped you get the job that you wanted. Definitely one thing that I've noticed is that universities in general in the UK are increasingly looking for people who know Mandarin. And I'm sure that this is true across many different sectors as well. If you can speak Mandarin Chinese to a decent level, that that's something that will be an advantage for you. I'm curious about any times you were able to help out a student or your Chinese helped you make a connection with a student. So one of my friends that I met through the language exchange scheme was from Taipei through the language exchange scheme at the university. I was able to help him out more widely other than just the language and show him like stuff that was to do around the city, the best restaurants to go to and that kind of thing, and just make him feel a bit more at home. And he was really grateful for that. So after he went back to Taiwan, he basically invited me to go and visit him and his family and traveling around Taiwan and oh, visited wow. him the year after that. What was that experience like getting more of an authentic, yeah, I guess, hometown experience in Taiwan visiting his family? On the cultural side, it was a really fantastic experience. The one thing that I would say is that on the language side, it was kind of a wake-up call for me because it was, I think at that time, it was around two years into my language learning journey. And at that point, I felt going into the trip that I'd learned a lot of Chinese. And assessing my level back then, I was probably around, in terms of vocabulary that I'd memorized, maybe around HSK3. I knew about 500 words could passively understand about 500, maybe could actively use a couple of hundred. And I found that when I got to Taiwan and I had expected I would be able to like, you know, engage in meaningful conversations with my Chinese friends when I was visiting them there and just get around and travel around on my own with no problems. And I found that it was a lot more difficult than I anticipated, that my level at that time was not as high as I thought it would be, that with the small amount of vocabulary that actually at that time I thought was a lot of vocabulary, but now realize it wasn't, that with that amount and that level, the amount of things that I could do in the language were limited. So that was kind of a wake-up call at the same time as being a great cultural experience. Can you think of a, a story where you encountered that deficiency in Chinese, where you were trying to get something done or do something and it just weren't able to happen? As part of that trip, one of the things that I did was I spent a week doing a work away 
for anyone who doesn't know, a workaway is basically where you go and you essentially exchange accommodation so you're able to stay somewhere for free and maybe eat food for free in exchange for working. And the work that I was doing was essentially working at a hotel, mm. doing very simple jobs like making the bed and things like that. Wow. Yeah, so this was a traditional Taiwanese tea cafe slash hotel. The woman there was really, really friendly. And when I first arrived there, she was really accommodating. And when it came to the tasks that I was supposed to do, initially she used Chinese because I presented myself as someone who could speak Chinese. I was sort of quite a bit overconfident about that at the time. Unfortunately, when it came to giving me instructions to do very simple tasks like make the bed or you know, clean and things like that. She very quickly discovered that she would need to use Google Translate <laughs> and that the communication was not so easy. So that was sort of a wake-up call as well, and a bit of a sort of humiliation. <laughs> but, you know, this that's a good example, Misha. Like, oftentimes there's very, like, simple everyday words that, you know, we take for granted, like in English, our native language, that you don't learn as even an intermediate student of a language. So, you know, making the bed. At what stage in your Chinese learning journey are you going to really learn how to say that? And you're probably not going to learn it until you're actually in China. <laughs> if I went back now, two years later, I'd probably handle those situations a lot better. There'd probably be the odd thing that I wouldn't know. But I think that even though I haven't had that experience, I haven't lived in China. I think you, if you've had enough exposure, if you've watched enough Chinese content, Chinese like sitcoms, different random stuff like that will often come up. That means that if you go there, you'll be able to handle a lot of, a lot of situations. What about any cultural things you encountered? I mean, obviously, I lived in England for a couple of years, and there were so many cultural differences just between the U.S. and England, right, that it took me a while to get used to. Certainly, there were some things like that you encountered when you were spending time in Taiwan and maybe your travels around China. When I was learning Chinese in a classroom environment, I would be surprised often that there was more than one way of saying the same thing. For example, the, the days of the week, like Xing Qi, and you have like Zhou Yi. Li Bai, Li Bai Yi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Zhou Yi, Xing Qi Yi. Yeah, all the same thing, all Monday. <laughs> That's basically my story. So I came in thinking, well, in English, we have one day of saying the days of the week. So going into my trip, I'd already had the experience of being surprised that there were two days of saying it. And then I remember on my trip, I encountered a third way on my workaway exchange. And that sort of, <laughs> that was a kind of wake up call as well in terms of the amount of vocabulary that's necessary to be proficient in the language. Well, I tell you, there's a whole nother nut that's hard to crack. And that's when you start encountering dates around the Chinese New Year. Because it's like for that for like about a month period, everyone just kind of switches to the lunar calendar. And I'm like, I have no idea. I mean, I'm, I've screwed this up before. Like one time, my business back in China was scheduling employees. And there were one was talking about this date. I'm like, okay, so we're this date. And I had it all messed up because like half were talking about the lunar calendar, half were not. I'm just like, why? Just normal calendar, please. <laughs> so I also want to know a little bit, Misha, like what were you doing to learn Chinese? And what were some of the things that you were finding like were really effective for you in building your proficiency? The methods that I used to learn Chinese, I usually split it into two sections. The first was the two years uh, leading up to that trip in Taiwan at the end of that second year. And essentially my methods there are attending classes, doing homework, reading very short dialogues in textbooks, not really very fun stuff. It was really in the yeah. last two years that I basically changed my approach because of that trip to Taiwan. I realized that if I wanted to 
get to a, any kind of level of proficiency, I needed to do something different because I'd been learning for two years and still really couldn't hold down. I didn't feel like a proper conversation yet. The way that I kind of changed that was to go from a classroom-based approach more towards a, like a mass input-based approach, where I started with mm. shortly after I came from Taiwan, that was when I discovered graded readers. And shortly after that, I had a holiday that I was planning to go on, which at the last minute fell through for various reasons. So I still had some time to take off work. And so what I decided to do was basically buy a load of graded readers and with the time I had off work, just spend as much time as possible reading them, <laughs> which is what I ended up doing. That for me was a real turning point in my Chinese because I felt that for the first time, I was reading stories that were kind of enjoyable. It was really rewarding to see progress in terms of reading characters and reading fluency and seeing that for the first time I felt, I think, that reading in Chinese was something that was possible to do. Wow, that's quite impressive. How many books did you read during that period? Four or five books. I was reading at that time above my level. The first graded reader that I read was called Country of the Blind. And I think that was at level one. I felt at the time that that was quite a challenging read for me. It was probably slightly above my level. I probably had memorized about 500 characters, but those characters didn't necessarily coincide with the ones that were used in that book. But I felt that even just after mm -hmm. completing one book like that, my confidence levels increased massively. It really like, helped my reading fluency. And I then progressed to level two, even though I probably felt the level two was slightly above my level. And yeah. those two weeks, I think, really, really helped with both my reading fluency and then when I got back to Leeds, back to work and had more encounters with students and speaking in Chinese more, I felt that it improved my spoken fluency as well. That's amazing to hear. I think that that's one of the main things that I realized was, especially if you're not living in the country, it was the, it's the importance of, of reading. I think before that experience of graded readers of reading extensively like that. Like my only experience of reading was really very short dialogues in textbooks, very boring stuff. And it didn't really give me a sense that reading more extensively, that reading a book, for example, was something that was possible to do. And I think particularly for anybody who's like I am learning Chinese outside of China, building reading fluency is as I've come to realize, like probably the most important thing you can do. Because I think if you're in China, it's very, very difficult for someone who's not living in China to replicate that side of the immersion. So the speaking side, the constantly being surrounded by the language in terms of interactions that you have with other people. But in terms of reading, you can fully replicate it. There's no reason why you can't read as much in the UK as in China. A lot of people may not understand the impact that reading can have, but the research shows when you're reading at a high level of comprehension and the language you're studying, it improves not just your reading ability, but it improves your speaking, your listening, and of course, your writing. That was exactly my experience. And as I say, when it came to having interactions, once I'd had that experience, it improved my interactions tenfold. Another experience that I had that was similar to that was after I finished graded readers, I decided I wanted to try to bridge the gap between you get to kind of a certain level of graded readers where you maybe can recognize a thousand characters or slightly more. And then you get to the top of the level of graded readers. And then there's still a gap between that and reading 
native content such mm-hmm. as articles and novels. And so I got to a point where I, I wanted to kind of bridge that gap. And that point sort of coincided for me with the beginning of the first lockdown uh, a year ago. So mm. that was March of 2020. One of the tools that I found really useful for doing that was the website LinkU. And you've had Steve Kaufman on the show before. I found that really useful in terms of building on the extensive reading experience, but going beyond graded readers and trying to tackle native materials, but having some assistance in terms of easily looking up words, being able to click on a word and look it up without like spending ages looking up a dictionary. And so during the first lockdown, I continued reading extensively, but moved more towards dialogues of native speakers and native articles, which was really difficult at first, but the experience of pushing myself through that during lockdown and with the additional spare time that I had in lockdown, which I basically used all to study Chinese, essentially. Wow. I found that like the experience of, of that not only improved my reading, but then when lockdown ended and I was able to reconnect with all of my Chinese friends, that improved those interactions, even though I hadn't done any speaking. I'd hardly done any speaking during the lockdown period because I hadn't really had much opportunity to. Well, that's pretty cool. You know, and I think it's also good to point out because there are some people who might be thinking, hey, if you are going to authentic materials like native materials, let me just go there and I'll start learning everything faster. But, you know, that's not the case, right? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's starting out like simpler is better because when you finally are moving to those native materials, it's like you have a much better base to work mm. from. Right? You have a base of comprehension and language that allows you to bridge that gap. So as a beginner and an elementary you know, learner, it's much harder to read at a 60-70% comprehension level of comprehension than it is for someone at your level to read at a 67% comprehension because you're able to bridge that gap. You understand everything a lot better regardless. One of the things that surprises me is when I was a complete beginner in Chinese, I used to ask people, how did you get to a point where you were able to understand or read Chinese fluently. A lot of the time when I asked people that, they didn't really give very clear answers about how they got there. And it seems that there are some people who are able to immerse in native content almost from day one and really push themselves through incredible pain barriers right at the beginning. And I'm, I think that the vast majority of people aren't like that. And I yeah, certainly am I not agree. like that. And I think sometimes they tend to dominate the world of YouTube. They dominate some of the advice that's out there in terms of language learning, because often those people are the ones who learn the languages the the most quickly. But I think that one of the misleading things is that their way of doing it, which is pushing themselves through incredible pain barriers and not really using the I plus one, the comprehensible input principle, using more like an I plus 100 principle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's something that a lot of people will find out the hard way doesn't really suit them. It didn't suit me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I really do think that for every one person who's learned Chinese like that, where it just jumped straight into native stuff, right? A total immersion. For every one person like that, there's got to be a thousand people who gave up. I completely agree with that. I've definitely met people who who are in that boat who gave up because they took an approach like that. And I have to say that there have been times 
during the lockdown period that I mentioned earlier, so where I was the initial lockdown period to March 2020 until the summer of 2020, and that kind of three to four month period was probably the time in my learning Chinese experience when I was pushing myself the hardest and really probably working with content that was quite far outside of my comfort zone. I would say that I progressed much faster than I had previously done, but by the time it got to the summer, I felt like giving up Chinese. <laughs> so I basically had to take three to four months off. I felt burned out. I didn't want to, I didn't want to see any more Chinese mm. or I couldn't face reading any more Chinese. I'd also been reading things that didn't particularly interest me. Well, I, I want to know what kind of kept you going though? One of the mo motivating factors was particularly the experience of concentrated amounts of mass immersion through reading that I had initially through the graded readers and then later on through LinQ was that although towards the end of lockdown, I felt very burned out. When I was reflecting on that, I could definitely see that not only had I progressed quite a lot in both speaking terms, comprehension terms, but it also helped me to see that acquiring a language is something that's possible. And since then, I've kind of amended my approach. I'm no longer as hardcore. I don't push myself out of my comfort zone to the extent I'm kind of content with spending time with the language every day, but only with content that interests me. I think those previous experiences did help to instill confidence in me that is important for uh, someone who's relatively new to language learning. I've interviewed, you know, dozens of people for this, all different levels of proficiency. And the one thing I find is that you've got to have a reason. So that's the thing that kind of carries you through some of the difficult times. And I think the reason doesn't necessarily have to be something that you can quantify, something like you want to get a job that uses Chinese or something like that. The reason can be a belief that it's possible to do and a desire to accomplish a particular challenge. I think that for me is, is reason enough. So Misha, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is learning Chinese right now? Focus initially on trying to build vocabulary. So trying to build as wide of a comprehensive vocabulary as possible. When I first started, this was one of the things that I neglected one of the things that I didn't realize being new to learning Chinese, I didn't realize how much vocabulary you need to know in order to be proficient. It's more than you expect. So to focus on building vocabulary, and if you're outside of China, to do that by reading and building a reading proficiency is, I think, probably one of the best ways. And finally, I would say, don't put off characters, because that's something that I did. I found the idea of characters extremely daunting, and I kind of put it off. I didn't really start learning characters until about one and a half years into learning Chinese. And if I could go back, I would probably do that earlier, and I would advise other people to not be daunted by learning characters. As soon as you get into space repetition, as soon as you get into reading graded readers, you'll realize pretty quickly that it's something that is possible and it will be less daunting than it initially appears. So I would advise people to not be put off by what seems like a daunting challenge and to not put off learning characters. And I know that there are people who are learning Chinese in different environments, some in China. There are people that have learned Chinese without reading. Some people are able to do that, particularly if they're immersed in the environment. But I think particularly if you're not immersed in a Chinese environment, then I find it difficult to conceive of how I would have learned Chinese without reading. So 
absolutely crucial, yeah. Words from a man who knows. Well, Misha, hey, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. It's been insightful, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, tree climber, interpretive dancer, lawnmower, smoothie drinker, parachuter, tater tot, and that one guy named Ethan. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo, and interview editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. I'd like to thank our guest, Misha Wilmers, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Passage. See you next time. <laughs>